0: Again, this is lesson number 9 in our current series on tithing versus grace giving. What saith the scriptures and we want to pick up where we left off last hour as we're asking and answering the question, do you understand these principles of grace giving? So let me invite you to open your bibles with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians Chapter 16. Now, unlike tithing, which was a form of taxation leveled upon believer and unbeliever alike in the nation of Israel, grace-giving is for believers, those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ and no percentage is stated per se, as we've studied extensively about tithing. Versus free will offerings now. And we're learning more about grace giving. You know, the story is told that the offering plate was going around at a particular Bible teaching church. And there was a man in the back. And, and when the plate came to him, he refused to pass it on. In fact, he refused to take it totally. And the, he was then asked by the usher, so do you want to take this? Do you want to give or anything? And the guy goes, No. And he says, well, why don't you just go ahead and take some off the offering plate because this is a missionary offering for the heathen. So I might as well go to you, as it were. Now, we recognize that 1 Corinthians 16 is written to believers. And it's on the heels of chapter 15, the great resurrection chapter, and the great chapter we read about the gospel. And what do we read in chapter 16 and verse 1? Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the church of Galatia, so you must do also on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. Now, as we look at this issue of grace giving, this is a very important passage. And there's a lot more in these verses than initially meets the eye. And when we're done with 1 Corinthians 16, we will begin looking at 2 Corinthians chapters. Eight and nine, two chapters devoted to the whole issue of grace giving, as God wants us to be clear on this, because many believers are not. Principle number one, which we looked at last time, was grace giving is designed to be an act of worship toward God and faithful stewardship of what he has graciously given to us. It is not designed for you to impress others. You say, where is that found in the verse? Well, they're getting together on the first day of the week. And in doing so, this is the time in which, first and foremost, they are worshiping the Lord. And part of that worship service was this collection for the saints. Now, question, why are they meeting on the first day? Well, in celebration of the Lord's Supper, modeled but not mandated in the New Testament, giving liberty as needed, And as a result, we're reminded again they're involved in worship. And and giving is to be done, first and foremost, as on to the Lord. Now, if you notice closely, they're not meeting on the Sabbath, as it were. And in fact, as we think of the Sabbath today, the seventh day is not Sunday. It's Friday night sundown, down till Saturday night sundown. And we're going to just briefly teach you some things today regarding the Sabbath. And then we're going to move on to look further into this passage. And I say that because oftentimes, believers under grace don't understand the Sabbath, nor do they understand why it's not for today by way of celebration. Number one, on the seventh day of the creation week, God rested, Shabbat, where we get Sabbath, from all his work, forming the basis for the work week. Now we know from Genesis chapter 2, thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done. Now why did he end it? Because he was tired? No. But because it was finished. It was completed. And he rested. And that word is the Hebrew verb for Shabbat. On the seventh day from all his work which he had done, then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Now notice that when you think of Sabbatarians, or those who believe we should be practicing the Sabbath today, you would think that after this verse here, which in introduces to us the Sabbath, that we would find later in Genesis 3 or 5 or 10 or 15 or 20, 25 or 30, 35 or 40, 45 or 50, we would think you would see several more references made to the Sabbath, but there are none. So you go to Exodus, you think, well, chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, da, da, da. Many references to the Sabbath, and again, there are none. In fact, when do we see the Sabbath again? Well, we see the next mention to the Sabbath found in Exodus chapter 16. If you'd like to turn there with me, you're welcome to do that, though I also have this passage up on the PowerPoint. For after Genesis 2.2, there is no mention of the Sabbath until Exodus 16. And then only in reference to the nation of Israel. Again, context, context, context is so important. You mean to tell me 2,000 years of human history have gone by between creation and what we're about to read, and there's no mention of the Sabbath? You're right. And the context for this is, again, the children of Israel have been slaves in the land of Egypt. We know that God, in his sovereignty and in his grace and his mercy, led them out of Egypt. In doing so, they crossed the Red Sea, and there was a great, again, act of God there to rescue them from the chariots of the Egyptians, and they make their way down to Mount Sinai, and on the way, what is God doing? He's providing for them. Some 2.5 million Jews that came out of Egypt needed to eat. And what did God do? He provided manna for them every day, except on the seventh day. And as we think of that, we, we read there in Exodus 16, Then he said to them, This is what the Lord had said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath, Shabbat, to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today, namely on Friday, and boil what you will boil, and lay up for yourself all that remains to be kept until morning. So they laid it up till morning, as Moses commanded, and it did not stink, nor were there any worms in it. Then Moses said, eat that today, for today is a Sabbath, a time of rest, to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. So God provides on the first day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day. And on the sixth day they gather as it were, for two days because they are not to do that on the Sabbath. Now, I've always kind of thought this was a little interesting because God did this for years, provided for them. So, honey, what are we having tonight? Manna. (laughs) What are we having tomorrow night? Fried manna. What are you having there? Boiled manna. You know, can't we have a little variety around here? And, you know, they began to complain. And God was very gracious in providing manna for them. And some of them did not take God at his word, and they said, tell you what. You know, they they went looking for manna the next day or whatever, and he never came. And In some cases, it actually rotted, as it were. But notice the connection of the Sabbath with who? The children of Israel making their way to Mount Sinai. Verse 27. Now it happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. They didn't find any manna. And the Lord said to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? I told you I wasn't going to provide on the Sabbath. Verse 29. See, for the Lord has given you the Shabbat, the Sabbath, Therefore, he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. And so we see that again, this hundreds of years went by before we see the next event of Sabbath keeping occurring. Connected with the children of Israel coming out of Egypt on their way to Mount Sinai. For at Mount Sinai, we see the third thing about the Sabbath. We see that Sabbath-keeping became codified as law in the Tenth Commandment, as the four, in, the, in the Ten Commandments, as the fourth commandment, and was to function as a sign of God's covenant with Israel as his chosen people. Now, Brother John made reference to that during the Lord's Supper. And we read in Exodus 20, in verse 9 and 10, "Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. Now, kind of interesting, I remember talking to a believer who who grew up in a very Dutch-reformed home in in the Grand Rapids, Michigan area. And they kept the Sabbath, but they made it Sunday instead of Saturday. And so he said his mom would prepare the food the night before because there was to be no cooking on on Sunday, the Christian Sabbath, so-called. And there was to be no work. He wasn't allowed to go out and shoot baskets. He wasn't allowed even to watch TV growing up. I said, so what did you do? He said, well, I, listened to B- I listened to it on my transistor radio. <laughs> and I said, why? What, did you want to hear the Detroit Lions lose again? Or what did do? you do? know. But see, the flesh is always looking for a way around any kind of law. And when I was at Bible college, we weren't allowed on Sundays to go play basketball because it might offend somebody out there, per se, per se. The Sabbath keepers, as it were. The Sabbath is not Sunday. It's the seventh day of the week. And there is no such thing as a Christian Sabbath by way of a day. And that's why principle number four is the penalty for not observing the Sabbath under the law was death. Did you know that? It's interesting how people seem to forget that part of the Sabbath. An example of that is found there in Numbers chapter 15, verses 32 through 36. Now, while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. Frankly, my wife is really happy if on Saturday I'm doing yard work, not under the law, Verse 33, and those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him under guard because it had not been explained what should be done to him. Then the Lord said to Moses, the man must surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So as the Lord commanded Moses, all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him with stones and he died. It's like I said about the prosperity gospel. They want to claim the blessings but not the cursings of Deuteronomy 28. And so are Christian Sabbatarians, which is an oxymoron today, do the same thing. A fifth thing we see about the Sabbath is under the dispensation of grace, Church-age believers are to reject any attempts to make Sabbath-keeping or holy days as obligatory upon the Christian as a standard or means of salvation or spirituality. Now, I say that because under grace, there are no holy days, including Christmas, which I referred to in my last session. Every day should be Christmas for the believer, including December 25th. There is no holy days. Unlike... The law, And that's why in Colossians 2.16, we looked at it last hour, so let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substances of Christ, notice Sabbaths. We're not under the tithe of the law and we're not under the Sabbath of the law either. And in fact, In Galatians 4, listen to what Paul writes. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. But then indeed, when you did not know God, as they were unsaved, you serve those which by nature are not gods. You call them gods, but they were idols. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again? You turn back to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be into bondage. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid for you lest I have labored for you in vain. Notice observing days or months or seasons. That's why there's no such thing as Lent in the Bible. In fact, we used to joke as a Roman Catholic growing up, we celebrated Lent. And I always used to say, Mom, can I give up school for Lent? You know what she would give up? Chocolate because she wanted to lose some weight during those 40 days. You know, again, it's just religious garbage. Garbage. That's not true to the Word of God. And he's concerned because they're going back to observing days and months and seasons. And it's interesting because I've noticed that evangelical churches today are starting to go back to Lent. I thought I got saved out of that system. Lent isn't in the Bible. So why in the world would we want to go back to that? You see, he also in Galatians 5, verse 1, says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. The yoke of bondage is, again, the law. Which leads us to principle number six about the Sabbath. Under the dispensation of grace, Sunday is not the Christian Sabbath. Though the first day was modeled, but not mandated, for Christian assembly and worship, because it celebrated our Lord's resurrection. Which happens again, Matthew 28, 1 makes it clear, Luke does as well, Mark, John, and so forth. And that's why we noticed last hour, Acts 20, verse 7, now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread. Not on the Sabbath. In chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, the passage we're studying, Verse 2, on the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, stirring up, as he may prosper that there be no collections when I come. And so there is no Christian Sabbath. They chose to celebrate on that day, though even that was not commanded, per se. God allows flexibility while still embracing the principle of gathering together as a church. The seventh thing. The truth about the Sabbath, we note, is that instead of setting aside one day for the believer to rest, God has provided a perpetual faith-rest life when you are mixing the promises and principles of God with faith in the Lord. And I'd like you to turn to Hebrews 4 to see this. Though we have studied extensively about the faith-rest life since I moved to Georgia, I think we had 20 messages that covered this as we worked our way not only through Hebrews 4, but John 15 and Romans 6, 7, and 8, and a number of other passages. Hebrews chapter 4, again, written to believers that are under persecution and pressure to cave in and go back to rabbinical Judaism instead of going on with Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4 and verse 1, therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, and the Greek word there is katapasis. We get the word pause from that. Let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel of his rest was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest. As he has said, so I swore in my wrath. They, the Exodus generation, shall not enter my rest. That's what he's referring back to. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, going back to Genesis 2. For he has spoken in a certain place on the seventh day in this why that God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, And those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, Psalm 95, verse 7, Today, after such a long time as it's been said today, if you'll hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, they would not have looked for another day. Verse 9, there remains therefore a rest. You know, every time in Hebrews 4, It's the word katapasis except here. It's sabbatismos. There remains a rest for the people of God. Now, is he saying there remains a day of rest? Is that his point? Is he saying that the Sabbath is still in vogue for the children of Israel here? Or for believers, the people of God? That's not what he's saying at all. He just simply stylistically uses the word sabbatismos as this could really ring true for them. Because on the Sabbath, what did you do? You cease from working, You focused on the Lord, and you supposedly trusted in him. In the same way, the faith rests life. You focus on the Lord and his promises, and you rest in him. Now, I say that because if you notice closely, There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest, he goes right back to katapasis. Which means he's referring again to the same thing using two different words here. Has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that. Now notice he doesn't say sabbatismos, but katapasis. Lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. You see, God has provided for us as believers through the cross, not only salvation rest, but the faith rest life where we can rest in the Lord as we walk by faith and trust him to fight our battles, trust him to direct our path, trust him to carry our burdens, trust him to energize our service and so forth. And so... As we go back now to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. They met on the first day of the week, not the Sabbath. They met in order to worship the Lord. As part of their worship, they were involved in giving. Which leads us to principle number two. Grace giving was the normative manner of giving among New Testament churches. It was the normative manner of giving among New Testament churches. You see, he says again, verse 1, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. In other words, what I instructed the churches of Galatia, and by the way, Galatia is not a city, it's a region, it's an area. Acts 17 ties into that. And he had given them instructions regarding this collection, and he's giving the Corinthians the same instructions because grace-giving was normative for New Testament churches. This is the way to do it. And that's why we can learn from this example, and we can draw out principles from this to enhance our grace-giving as well, though the targeted need of this particular special offering that we're taking is different than what would be true of us today. This, you say, well, why is he giving these orders? Well, maybe it was due to ignorance about grace-giving like many today. Maybe it was because he wanted motivation in grace-giving. To in order to, again, have it all in place before he came. That's clearly part of it. Maybe it was to answer their questions, as we saw last hour. Chapter 7 on is answering questions they had. Or perhaps they were caught up with novelty and missing the real point. Some churches are really into novelty and they like to do things, you know, differently and so forth and so forth. But, you know, at the end of the day, novelty wears off. What really matters is what does the word of God have to say? So principle number three, dear friends, is that grace giving can be specifically initiated and compelled by an express genuine need to support others. And the key word there is need, need. You say, well, what was the need? The need is going to be the impoverished saints in Jerusalem and Judea by virtue of a famine and other things that had wrecked havoc on them economically. You see, well, how do you know that? Well, look at verse 3. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send and bear your gift to where? To Jerusalem. It was to minister to the saints in Jerusalem, and he will develop that more in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. By the way, was Paul afraid to make this need known? No. I say that because, you know, some believers have taken the approach, and it's, you know, their liberty to do this. George Mueller did this. He never made any of his needs known. He just they just prayed about it. Though he did send out a yearly Sheet that explained where every penny went and things. So, in doing so, he was kind of indirectly letting everyone know where the bills were at. But he never did that. On the other hand, there's nothing wrong with coming alongside with no pressure and just saying, We want you to know there's a need here, church. By the way, Duluth Bible Church over the years, we would have monthly, quote, special offerings over and above the general offering. And in doing so, there was a need to support. Tail to bar in El Salvador, Nelson Hernandez in, in, in Nicaragua, or a benevolent fund that we had that was at the discretion of the elders to use if someone needed a new fridge or something like that. There were all those special offerings, and frankly, I liked it. And I'll tell you why I liked it. Because I knew when I gave to that, I wasn't giving to pay for my salary. <laughs> so I liked that in that sense. And by the way, as a pastor, I gave just like everyone else. Because you see, as we're going to see in a moment, pastors are not excluded of the responsibility of grace giving. But there is a need here that Paul made known. So why was there financial need among these Jewish saints, I should say, at Jerusalem and Judea? Well, number one is because of Christian benevolence towards fellow believers in Christ in the early chapters of the book of Acts in the early years of the church. Remember, when they got saved in the day of Pentecost, some 3,000, and then they got baptized, they were given a public proclamation that they were identifying with Jesus as the Messiah and therefore with these Christians. And that immediately had ramifications in the Jewish community. Including economic. And some of them also remember were proselytes that had traveled quite a ways. And as a result, they needed a place to stay. They needed food. They wanted to hang around for a while now that they had gotten saved. Isn't it funny? My pastor used to say this. Before someone's saved, you know, they're night owls. They're up to the, they're whatever. They don't think twice about it. And then when they get saved, they go on a health nut kick. They have to be in bed by eight o'clock. And he says, isn't that funny how that works? And I'm not saying if you go to bed at 8, that's between you and the Lord. His point was simply, why is it we're willing to sacrifice sleep before we're saved, but sometimes not willing to do it after for something that is worthwhile, though obviously moderation is needed. We also know in Acts 4 that they began to have all things in common and share things. And this is where Barnabas is going to come along and be a magnanimous giver. And this is why, in chapter five, Ananias and Sapphira are going to lie about what they gave, and they're going to experience maximum divine discipline. So that was one th- way that, in a sense, economically, the savings account went down. But the second one was persecution of believers. If you know Acts chapter eight, that saw wrecked havoc on the church. And as a result of persecution, some of them were moved out of their home areas. They were moved into different areas. And there's nothing like getting uprooted, as it were, to impact you even economically. By the way, the Lord had told them to go into all the world to preach the gospel. A few years had gone by, and they hadn't moved. And by the way, someone has said that this persecution was the first mission board to get them moving. Thirdly, there was a severe famine in Judea, which we'll look at in a moment, as well as there was the issue of paying taxes to Rome. Remember, in that area, they were still under the Roman Empire, and they still had to pay Roman taxes, as it were. But if you want to go with me to Acts chapter 11, I'm going to show you a reference to that famine that was a stimulus for why... This offering was needed. And by the way, it was to meet needs, not wants. In Acts chapter 11, we pick it up in verse 27. In these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar, just like he had predicted. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, please note that, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. And so the prophecy of Agabus was fulfilled around A.D. 46. And Paul was writing 10 years later in A.D. 55 or 56. So the effects of this famine were still prevalent. Notice, by the way, that they didn't send money in general to all the people in Judea. They sent the money to believers in Judea. For we're to do good unto all men, but especially those of the household of faith. And you see, the unbelieving Jews could tap into local charities run by the authorities of Judaism, but these believers were cut off from those kind of resources by virtue of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and their willingness to identify with the Christian church, as it were. As I think of this offering being taken up to Meet this need. Let me remind you what we saw in one of the first two studies in this series as to what are some physical needs that your grace giving can meet. Number one is personal physical needs. Matthew 6, don't get anxious about what you're going to eat or drink or put on. Those are physical needs. We have having food and raiment, let us be content. And this is where... Grace giving can meet that need. Number two, family needs. 1 Timothy 5:8. If any provide not for his own, especially those of his own household, he's worse than an unbeliever. In the context of providing for the needs of your family, and in particular, your widow mother. Thirdly, others' needs. Ephesians 4:28. We're to work with our own hands to provide not only for ourselves, but for others who have a need. Like James 1.27 talks about widows and orphans, people who cannot reciprocate when you meet their need. Fourthly, those unable to work, 1 Timothy 5.13-16. through Now please distinguish this from those who aren't willing to work. Furthermore, Grace-giving can meet the need of faithful Bible teachers, Galatians six six and we're going to see this in a future study when we look at who should you support and who should you not support. And this carries over also to faithful pastors slash teachers, 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. And then there's also the issue of missionary endeavors. Missionary endeavors. You know, I can't help but think, though I recognize there's a peri-day chapter division as it were you know in first corinthians 15 when he goes over the gospel do you know what the last verse of that chapter is therefore my beloved brethren be steadfast and movable always abounding in the work of the lord knowing that your labor is not in vain in the lord now concerning the collection for the saints And by the way, when it comes to ministry and missions, it does involve the undergirding of support unless the missionaries are bivocational. Thinking of the work of the Lord, look at chapter 16, 1 Corinthians, chapter 16, verse 6. And it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. You know the word send there we're going to see in a future study is a word that's used by Paul to talk about missionary support. Wherever I go, whenever I go. Now notice, if you notice, Paul's planning, but his plans are not in concrete. See, when it comes to planning, believers sometimes are imbalanced in one of two ways. Some of them are like, I don't plan, I just trust the Lord. I said, really, you don't plan to eat today? You don't plan to go to work tomorrow? You don't plan to go to sleep? Of course, we all plan. So don't have this super spiritual, I don't plan. In fact, a man plans his, his way, but the Lord directs his steps. The other side is that people plan in such concrete that the Lord would have to have a jackhammer to get them to move off their plan. And that's where there has to be this flexibility. And if you notice with Paul's planning, he's planning, but he's flexible. You know, winter's not a good time to travel, so I don't think I'm going to come then, but da-da-da-da-da. And the word when literally means whenever. Verse 17, For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you, if the Lord permits. And that's really important. What James is rebuking his audience about in James 4 is that they had a well-oiled, very organized plan. There was only one problem. They didn't bring the Lord into the plan, if the Lord wills. And then he says, verse 8, But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, For a great and effective door is open to me, and there are many adversaries. You know, for some believers, because there's many adversaries, they would think it's not an open door. (laughs) True. Paul says there's a wide open door, there's people wide open to the gospel here, but I want you to know there's opposition. And by the way, whenever an individual or a church is preaching the gospel, expect there to be a target on their back, and there will be opposition. But notice verse 10. And if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear. Fear of what? Of having his needs met, I think, is part of it. For he does the work of the Lord as I also do. Therefore, let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace, that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. So notice, again, there's this indication of financial help in order to provide for his missionary endeavors. Now, one thing you will notice in Scripture, which I find very interesting, is there's no mention of taking up an offering to pay for a church building. Now, that's kind of interesting. But there's a reason for that. First of all, What about the church using and paying for a, quote, church building? There's basically five periods of church buildings in church history. The first is A.D. 33, when our Lord died, day of Pentecost, till 48, in which Paul goes on missionary journeys. In Acts 2 and the following, when the early church was almost entirely Jewish believers, what did they do? They met in the open courtyard of the temple to begin with. Acts 2:46 and 542, and in private houses, from house to house. Acts 2:2,246, 2, 2, 2, 542, 83 and 12:12. 12, 12. They met in the temple. Now keep in mind, as time would go on and Gentiles were getting saved, that would never work. First of all, the Jewish authorities were down on Christians, and number two, the court of the Gentile was separated from where Jews could go, so you could never have a united meeting anyhow. So there's not much temple use. There's more this using of homes. And if you remember correctly, in the upper room is not only where they met the night in which Christ was betrayed, but they met on the day of Pentecost. They were meeting in the upper room. And how many people were there? 120 must have been a pretty big room. But it was in someone's house. If you read closely Acts chapter 12, you'll read about Mary, how there was a prayer meeting going on for Peter, who was in prison. And they came, and there were many people praying. Where were they meeting? In homes. There's nothing wrong with having a church at homes. My pastor used to say, the church began in homes, and it'll probably end in homes. By virtue of persecution. I had a lady a number of years ago come to me as our church was growing there in Duluth, and they said, You know, our church is growing. I think what we need to do is start meeting in a home again. And I said, well, great. Buy a big enough house, we'll all come over. (laughs) The issue isn't meeting in a home or not meeting in a home. Isn't it funny? Big churches try to break it down into smaller, and small churches want bigger so you can do different ministries. And you know, you have as many people as the Lord wills, as it were, in your church. And there needs to be the public gatherings and there needs to be more personal fellowship. And even in our small little church, that's what we're trying to do. Second era of church buildings was A.D. 48 to 150. Gentiles could not go together with Jewish believers into the temple or sit together with Jewish believers in the synagogue, per se. They were separated So they normally utilized the private houses of believers in Christ at the time of the church gathering, and they even used a rented school, the school of Tyrannus, they would use probably from right around noon to five in the afternoon because the workday started early and they're usually done by noon, having a little siesta, as it were, and Paul took advantage of that, rented a room in the school of Tyrannus. Is it okay to use a church building, I mean a a school building for your local church? Yeah, because remember, the church isn't the building, it's the people. Now, I'd like you to just turn for a quick moment to Romans 16, not too far from here. Romans 16. In Romans 16, verse 5, what do we read? Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. The house wasn't the church. The church is the people. Now, a lot of times we call our buildings today churches. And frankly, I'm okay with that, though technically, again, the building is not the church. It's simply the place where the church gathers. Go with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians, where we were, chapter 16. and Look at verse 19. 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 19. The churches of Asia greet you, Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. Again, even when it comes to your house, dear friends, you see they're a tool or an idol. It's either something that you worship, as it were, and it's holy ground, per se, that you don't let anyone else in, or you see it as a means of ministry to others. And that's how they viewed it. The third era regarding church buildings was AD 150 to approximately 250. And archaeology shows us that Christians were using renovated private homes that had rooms constructed to accommodate larger public gatherings along with the catacombs. So they would take a private home and they would kind of knock out some walls and open up a space so they could gather there as a larger group than they could without the renovation. And then the catacombs is a whole different thing. Under the city of Rome lies a vast system of catacombs. And the ancient Romans built these catacombs because they simply didn't like death. They feared it. They didn't want to think about it. They wanted to push death out of out onto the margins, even out of sight. So they buried their dead underground. And the first few centuries after Christ, Christianity was at odds with the empire. Christians were being marginalized, ostracized, and persecuted. So what did they do? They, many of them went into the city of Rome, into the catacombs underneath. Now, we, we have been able to go into these. You could go there today and see them, and I'm show you some pictures of them, per se. But look at this area right here. And by the way, if you notice, those are skulls. Those are skulls there. Because you see, the early Christians had to bury their dead somewhere, so they put them there. Now, before the early Christians did, pagans did it too. And as a result, there's actually Christian emblems, such as the dove and such as an anchor and so forth, that you will find in there. But if you notice closely, that's a pretty good-sized little room where you could gather as a church and you could worship the Lord together and they did that kind of thing the fourth era is ad 250 to 313 and archaeology shows donated private houses or public buildings owned by christians were being used for public christian assembly this is a case where they would donate the home and they could use the whole home as a designated place for the church to meet, or maybe they owned a public building of some kind, and they said, hey, you can use the hall over here, or my school over here, or whatever, whatever, and they were starting to meet in that kind of arrangement more often. You know, it's interesting, like the church in China, the, quote, underground church in China, you know, they meet in homes. You know, they do not know how many, quote, Christians there are in the underground church, but they estimate between 50 and 200 million in China. It's incredible. You see, in order to be viewed legally by the Chinese government, you have to sign on the dotted line that you support the government. And so these Christians don't know. How many of them are clear on the gospel or genuinely saved. whatever, whatever, I don't know. All I'm knowing is Christianity is flourishing, and they don't even own public buildings. Which leads us to our fifth era, A.D. 313 to present, with the emperor Constantine becoming, quote, a Christian. He Christianized the empire at the Edict of Milan in 313. Thus, the church was freed from persecution and didn't have to stay underground anymore, and Christians started building large buildings as meeting places, to gather for, quote, worship, and this has continued on down to our day. And by the way, this has been in many cases a travesty. You know, you look at St. Peter Basilica in Rome. Do you know that that was supposedly built on the third place that Peter's head hit after he was beheaded? I thought, wow, that must have been like a Super Bowl head. Boom, 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 boom. And then they said, that's where they're putting it. And you know, St. Peter Basilica was paid from the indulgences of people who were told that either them or their relatives were going to hell or purgatory and that they could atone for their sins by giving money to the church. Religion, once again. Satan, once again, using religion to blind people And that's why it's kind of interesting if you ever go to Central America, and I have many times. Every town you go into, you know what's right in the center of the town? What's right in the center, Dave? Roman Catholic Church. The park and the Roman Catholic Church. They've had a stranglehold for many years. Though there's many, quote, evangelicals today, but that doesn't mean anything. Now, that's St. Peter Basilica on the inside. And that gold is a tribute to the lies of religion and a failure to understand how it's the precious blood of Christ. It's not by silver and gold that we are redeemed, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So how should we view a church building? Let me just make some closing comments here. Number one, The church is not the building, it's the people. You must always remember that. We are the church. We gather at Joyful Life Baptist Church, their building, and we're glad to be able to have this place. Number two, believers need a building of some kind if they plan to publicly gather, whether it's a home, a church building, or whatever. So buildings are not wrong in themselves, in fact, they meet a need in order to publicly gather as a local church. Thirdly, buildings should be viewed as a functional base of operation, not the, quote, temple of God or an idol. By the way, your body is the temple of God, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. And in 1 Corinthians 3, 16, you, plural, are the singular temple of God. As a local church, we are the temple of God again because the Holy Spirit lives in us individually and as we gather together collectively, per se. And as a result, the building we use is simply a Functional base of operation. And I emphasize functional. Which leads us to number four. Buildings are not testimonies. People are. You know, some people say, ah, look at that building over there. What a testimony. A testimony of what? A testimony that people gave, maybe. Testimony of different things. But no one's been saved by looking at a building. In fact, years ago, David Allen, a pastor from Detroit, came to Duluth for a Sunday school convention. And he met at, they met at First Presbyterian, which is a very elaborate building there. And he said to the people gathered, if you think this building is a testimony, it's not. You just as soon start a hot dog stand outside and you'd attract more people than you are by this building. And my pastor said, he'll never be invited back again. But keep in mind, buildings are not testimonies. People are. Number five, and our last point. Wisdom needs to be exercised when it comes to building and debt versus investing and in what the Bible clearly teaches we should financially support, like pastors, teachers, missions, etc. You see, at Duluth Bible Church, we did not own our own building for the first 13 years of our existence officially as a church, let alone meeting in homes before that. Because we were convinced we were better off supporting pastors, teachers, whatever, than buying a building, going in debt, and who knows what else. And even when it came to a building, and I'm not saying one can never have debt if indeed they're able to pay it, but what happens once you go in debt is there's all this pressure now to make sure you have the payment. So what we did is we waited on the Lord, and 13 years later, he provided an old school building, 50,000 square feet of building, which we bought at $35,000. Put 50,000 into it, brought it all up to code, and the day we walked in for use, it was totally paid for, and we never had that issue of debt. But we had a principle in mind when we made those kind of decisions. And so we're thankful again to use this building and only the Lord will direct us in the future till he comes. But let's have a biblical perspective. And there can be a place where the offering does help pay for your lease or rent and it does here. But even then, the Lord really gave us a great deal here as well and we thank him for it. Well, our time is gone. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your wonderful word. So many things to be reminded of, so many things to be applied. And Father, even though this passage is on grace giving, there's so many tangents I'm taking in order to communicate things that are needful and helpful for believers to understand. But we know that Second Corinthians chapter 8 will make clear that the ultimate in grace giving was how you gave your Son, who gave his life. He who was rich for our sakes became poor, that we through his poverty might be made rich. How can we ever thank you enough? Thank you for what you're doing in our midst. Thankful for the building we have, but thank you for the church that we can be part of. And as we look next time more about the local church and grace giving and so forth, indeed, we trust that you'll continue to teach us and continue to bring us along and even remind us of stuff that we know already, but perhaps have forgotten or are failing to apply. And we just want to thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.